Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. In this episode, we'll meet Sean Sherman and learn a little bit about Indigenous foods and foodways, and how Sean critically examines colonization and how he approaches cultural reclamation. My first impression of Sean Sherman was that he looks like a musician. He's tall and slim, and he has long hair that he keeps in a tight braid. My sense that Sean looks like a musician was reinforced by the fact that when I first met him, he was stepping out of his truck, and he happened to be wearing cowboy boots and a western shirt. If at that moment someone had told me Sean had just gotten back from recording a track with Willie Nelson, I would have believed them. Moreover, it's not just Sean's sortorial and grooming choices that evoke musician. When Sean cooks, he approaches food in the same way that a jazz musician might approach playing their instrument. He riffs, he tells stories, and he sneaks in a joke from time to time. That said, Sean is more than a James Beard award-winning chef. And he's more than an artist. He's in the vanguard of a movement of community organizers, advocates, activists, and educators working with and within indigenous communities to reclaim culture, history, and self-determination after centuries of colonization. Here's how Sean introduces himself. Well, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation, so I'm enrolled with the Oglala Lakota. Um, I went to school in the Black Hills in Spearfish. I did high school and college there. I moved out to Minneapolis in the late 90s. I became a chef um, really early, around 2000. And I've been a chef in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area for um, quite a few years. Uh, a few years into my chef career, I kind of had the epiphany to do the work that we're doing now, which is just focusing on indigenous foods in North America. So I started my company called The Sioux Chef in 2014, where we opened up the Tatanka truck with the Little Earth Community of United Tribes here in Minneapolis, which we eventually um, purchased outright from them. Um, we've had our catering operation in the city going since then. We've uh, traveled extensively across the United States and parts of Canada, Alaska, um, Europe, India, Mexico. Um, we uh, started a nonprofit called Natives, which is North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, where we're about ready to open up um, Indigenous Food Lab, which is a nonprofit restaurant model. Put out our cookbook, The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, in 20, late 2017. It won the James Beard Award in uh, 2018 for Best American Cookbook. Um, I won a second James Beard Award in, uh, last year for leadership, the work uh, following our nonprofit vision. Um, and we've had a lot of accomplishments and uh, an immense amount of media, and we've uh, been able to network and meet a lot of people all over the place. After Sean introduced himself, I asked him how he thought about indigenous foods and what he was trying to accomplish in his work. I think his answer highlights exactly how much colonization continues to alienate indigenous folks from their cultures and histories. Such alienation is evident in the relationships that many indigenous persons have with their food and their food systems. Well, part of it as a chef um, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, it was just the having the realization of, you know, even though St. Paul and Minneapolis were a great food scene, you can find food from all over the world. There was just nothing that represented the land that we're actually standing on. Um, and, you know, that hit home, especially being raised on a, tri on a tribal community on Pine Ridge Reservation and realizing that personally, I knew, you know, very little um, seemingly about my own ancestral foods, about Lakota foods. Um, so it was just kind of like trying to understand like what were Lakota foods, what were my ancestors eating and preserving, were they growing things, were they trading with people, 
Um, and just realizing like how much damage was done to like our own knowledge as, as indigenous peoples. And also just realizing the invisibility of indigenous culture across North America in general, you know, so looking at all the big cities and, you know, today you have Chicago and New York and LA where there's zero native restaurants that represent the land that they're on. Um, and it just seems, you know, pretty insane. So for me, it was uh, not only a lot of curiosity, but a lot of just wanting to understand what my own heritage was, really trying to develop that and trying to understand, like, what were people actually eating? So for us, you know, when we started our businesses, we tried to put ourselves in guidelines of using only regional indigenous food and flavors to make the recipes um, and highlighting foods coming from tribal communities and trying to push economic opportunity into those regions. Um, and just really looking at how we are eating um, and looking at things like the commodity food program and uh, how that has affected us over the past few decades and um, looking at food access issues, which are very racially, you know, motivated issues, too, and trying to understand paths of how we can do something good and impact um, uh, and have a lot of impact with the work that we're trying to do. Following up on what Sean said about Indigenous foods. Ask him about the specifics of a couple of projects he's been working on. His nonprofit Natives, which stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, and the Indigenous Food Labs that he's been starting to build, with the first one recently opening in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's good that he's been working on a ridiculous amount of stuff, which I definitely suggest that folks look into if you're interested in thinking about food systems, decolonization, or the reclamation of Indigenous cultures, knowledges, and life ways. Well, with Natives, you know, we've just been doing a lot of work um, trying to build and get ready to launch this. Um, we've been uh, raising a lot of money to make this happen, and we've been pretty successful being able to find some big supporters to help us um, who are believing in the vision that we have. Um, and we're just right on the cusp of, uh, you know, pulling this trigger. So we're so close to signing off on a building here in Minneapolis to be the heart of what we're doing. So this will be the very first Indigenous Food Lab, which will be a live restaurant that's open to the public. It'll have a classroom where people can come and take classes. Um, the curriculum we've been developing around Indigenous food way um, knowledge and everything from like Native agriculture, seed saving, wild food, ethnobotany, food preservation, culinary, um, crafting, language, history. Um, you know, we just really want to create a safe place for Indigenous focused education to be mm -hmm. accessible. Um, but our goal with creating this educational and training center is so that we can work with tribal communities and help them develop their own indigenous food um, focused kitchen for their community. And it could be something as small as a catering operation or as large as a full scale restaurant if they have the means and resources. Um, and we're just really excited about, um, you know, how much impact we could have if we are able to help design, build, support and train these smaller indigenous kitchens and tribal communities and um, get people excited about their own foods that we had helped develop to be about their tribe, their community, using community gardens and a lot of the wild foods around them. And uh, even, you know, putting the uh, securing everything in their language and all of that. Um, our goal is to do this over and over so we can open up food labs in cities all across pretty much everywhere, but starting in the U S and so it could be in Seattle, Denver, Albuquerque, Phoenix, Boston, Chicago, and each one would just be kind of a regional center point. So it's kind of like a hub and spoke system where, you know, the center point is the area for training and education in the food lab. And then we, each one would branch out around itself to work with tribal communities. But we also have been developing a program to work with a lot of universities too, because we've had yeah. some university partners over the past few years. 
um, and being able to continue a lot of this uh, network and education around indigenous food. So we can offer uh, universities um, uh, the same thing that we can offer tribal communities, which is helping to develop a food service operation for their campus. So the campus could have access to indigenous foods of their region and, you know, bring awareness, especially to the campus and the students, but also giving that campus the ability to work with professors and students to take on research development projects that we, you know, will be, we'll have a full list of because it's going to be a lot of curriculum that we have to develop and we're going to need a lot of partners out there. So yeah. we're excited about all these possibilities and opportunities. Thinking about the breadth of projects that Sean was working on, let me think about what he's trying to accomplish. So I asked him about the objectives that informed his work. This is how he answered. It was quite the evolution just because in the beginning, in the very beginning, we just wanted to open up a restaurant because we thought that would be a great platform to be able to showcase, you know, what is modern indigenous foods and how it's applicable today. But, you know, it started growing and growing because it's growing and growing and growing because it's not just about a restaurant. You know, it's not just about a chef. It's about, you know, this entire thought process. And there's so much diversity involved with it, with all the different tribes and regions. Um, and we really wanted to see how we can, you know, figure out how can we get this out there everywhere, you know, because if we just did one restaurant in the cities here in Minneapolis, it would have literally locked us in a box and, you know, not given us the opportunity to do the networking we've been able and the travel we've been able to do to visit other areas. So the nonprofit was a much better vision um, to be able to, you know, see a clear path. And we kind of stole off of um, like a, like a, a franchise restaurant model almost where they kind of have a central spot um, and you're able to like, you know, have really solid systems that you're able to just replicate over and over again. So building something that was replicable was, you know, something that we were really pushing for because we want to just be able to get these systems out there and that they can survive so they can do the work um, out in the field, which is, you know, helping to further develop um, indigenous culture and, and, and around food and securing that indigenous food knowledge for the next generations. Um, so, you know, it's just been uh, a long time of developing and it's all obviously going to take a life of its own once it really gets um, starts on it, start, uh, once we get it live. <laughs> um, but we're doing our best to try and steer the plan and the operation and we see a really clear path on doing it. And, you know, our two main focuses is just creating access to indigenous foods and creating access to indigenous education. Um, and partnering with people everywhere that we can help help pursue that, so the next generations have all of this in front of them as they as they start their own journeys. What Sean said about emulating a franchise model with Indigenous Food Labs spurred me to ask Sean about how he approaches developing partnerships to ensure that those partnerships are empowering and meets the needs and wants of communities that might be very different from one another. His answer is a wonderful survey of how one might approach analyzing the effects of colonization and the interest of thinking about food sovereignty and the reclamation of indigenous foodways. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's it's a it's a wide spectrum, like you said, and there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, and we just really try to break it down into the simplest factors as possible. You know, one is just education. Yeah. Um, and we look at the, the lack of our own indigenous education over the past century. You know, so just researching, like, what's happened over the past couple of centuries was a big piece to it, you know. So for me, it was like, you know, trying to understand what was lost. So looking at uh, like my lifetime, um, I was born in 1974 and looking at in 1874, my Lakota ancestors still had a hundred percent of their indigenous knowledge intact. Mm-hmm. And they were still living on the plains and everything was still, you know, a hundred percent complete. So like how did, within 100 years did we lose so much? So when I was born on Pine Ridge and being raised like 
very little of this knowledge was trickling down to me, you know, and we're living in a very colonized uh, educational system that was very propagandic about uh, the U.S. Um, successes, right, without, with, without really talking about how they actually uh, became a global power off of stolen indigenous land and utilizing uh, stolen indigenous peoples from Africa for forced labor. So it's just realizing like all these pieces of our own indigenous education and, and identifying what is indigenous education and starting to, you know, piece that start that part back together. Mm-hmm. And then with the food, you know, it was just a never ending study too of just understanding like all the variety, all the pieces of food uh, to understand how these food systems work for indigenous peoples. And, you know, we've just been developing an indigenous food system map basically that we can apply to uh, most indigenous cultures around the globe. Because you just look at um, the study of agriculture and how, what kind of seeds are people utilizing, what kind of farming were they doing, um, looking at uh, the, the the wild foods and the ethnobotany side of things and just understanding how indigenous peoples basically have this blueprint to live sustainably, utilizing primarily plant knowledge when it comes down to it. So really starting to uncover the, a lot of the uses for the plants in our regions and our vicinities and to start recording what those are and also understanding that we can take that further and even like learn more about them in today's world, right? So part of it was not just understanding traditional pieces, but also understanding that we're in a completely different world. There's different plants, um, but we also have access to an immense amount of resource and education that we can apply to try and rebuild this. So a lot of this is just re- rebuilding and we feel like we're just, you know, as indigenous peoples on, on a global scale that we're walking into a reclamation period of really understanding the true strengths of the knowledge of our ancestors and how we can apply those in today's world um, and how like we can really carry this um, far into the future. Continuing on the topic of reflecting upon the effects of colonization, to think about how one might approach the reclamation of indigenous culture and life ways, Here's what Sean had to say after I asked him about how indigenous education differs from more European approaches to education. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of pieces, and I'll try to address both of those, but just feel free to steer me in the right direction if I wander, But because um, it's broad. But, you know, part of it was just understanding what, what does the word decolonize mean and what does the word, uh, you know, to, to colonize mean and what is colonialism, right? So identifying colonialism is just, you know, uh, of how these uh, uh, primarily like European countries were, um, you know, taking control over land and people mm-hmm. and then pulling out a lot of natural resources and placing settlers there um, to continue that. that mm-hmm. thing. We kind of are still like in a colonial world, like we're still yeah. reeling from it. You know, there's a lot of obviously with the fights of big oil and mining and fracking and things like that. And we see the desecration of the Amazon forest in real time with, mm-hmm. um, you know, indigenous peoples in real danger right now today there. Um, so just understanding what that part is, but, you know, understanding like how, you know, we look at the history of the U.S. since that where, that's where we are. We look at the 1800s of being a really harsh century for indigenous mm-hmm. peoples. And the U.S. pushes westward and basically takes claim to everything from coast to coast during that one century. And the mass amount of damage that was done to the indigenous peoples living throughout what is, you know, the United States and up in Canada and Mexico. Um, but we also look at the 1900s in the U.S. of how that was an entire civil, uh, a century of assimilation efforts, reformation efforts, um, disenrollment efforts, uh-huh. um, and really just invisibility when it comes down to it for indigenous peoples. So we're at, now, like I said before, we're kind of at this reclamation efforts uh, where we can see the value of our ancestors' knowledge, and we're trying to push that forward into the future by 
revisiting and re-understanding as much as we can and understanding the damage that's been done and trying to rebuild off of that. I think, you know, now is at a time where we can, um, you know, for Indigenous food, especially throughout the U.S., it really did not have um, the time period to evolve into uh, into anything because people were still we're still living in extreme poverty situations in many different uh, tribal communities and are still suffering from food access and we're still suffering from assimilation efforts and there's all sorts of stuff still against us as indigenous people. So for, in order to revitalize um, and to have this reclamation period, we have to evolve and we have to, you know, create uh, using the, the wisdom of our ancestors and all this knowledge of indigenous food systems and apply it in today's world to be able to grow it into something new. And it's really important that every individual group of indigenous peoples out there has the opportunity to decide what is the future of their indigenous foods. So the best thing that we can do as a small culinary group is just try to give people those tools and even help and support if they want it to be able to have that opportunity to grow that and to do that for themselves um, and to do it in a way that feels right, that pays respect to the ancestors, to the environment um, and to their future, to their future generations, you know, to be true stewards of this knowledge that they can pass on again, like their ancestors intended to have us uh, have all that knowledge given to us. So I think, you know, for us is looking at those two pieces and it's looking at what is the power of indigenous education versus colonial education. So if you look at the Western educational model, that we've been in for so long you know it celebrates a lot of the arts it celebrates a lot of past writings from european conquerors um, and it really dismisses a lot of indigenous peoples on a global scale and and people of color in general Um, so for indigenous education it's really um, looking at how people again were surviving um, utilizing what was around them in their region and their and their um, ecosystem so plants and animals and how to harvest preserve Um, how to process um, and all the tradition that comes into that and also understanding the immense amount of diversity that sits out there of realizing like how diverse our indigenous world is and how we can be learning a little bit from every single um, indigenous group out there like there's so much value with this indigenous knowledge that is much more valuable valuable than the colonial perspective which was just you know again placing settlers to pull out resources that really have nothing to do with anything they make some people extremely rich they desecrate land and environment and they leave indigenous peoples to poverty and waste when it comes down to it all right so when you're thinking indigenous education it's a it's a matter of switching perspectives and switching like the stories that are centered right (laughs) switching to more the narratives of indigenous peoples the perspectives of indigenous peoples the stories of indigenous peoples something like that Yeah, absolutely. Because you're looking at how, again, like the vast knowledge of all the plants around us, you're looking at how people are, um, you know, we're utilizing animals and plants as part of their uh, mythology, a part of their religions, a part of, you know, life lessons and stories when it comes down to it. And, you know, how um, understanding the universe in this very, you know, by being a part of nature instead of trying to be on top of it. Um, and, and you can find these, this, um, you know, you can find that same situation in, tra- in indigenous communities on a global scale because, you know, we've been able to all through our travels work with uh, indigenous peoples from Africa and Southeast Asia and India and Australia and New Zealand and Hawaii and South America and even Northern Europe. You know, there's a lot of indigenous cultures still alive around the world and some of them 
are varying levels of how much indigenous knowledge they still have retained, how much in some areas it's completely lost or wiped off the map 100%, you know. Mm. But either way, it's just understanding of all these regions and really looking back because for our history in the, in, in the Americas, it's not a lot, it's not a deep history. It doesn't go back very far in human history, but a lot of damage has been done to indigenous cultures and to environments and landscapes. And through indigenous focused education, there's just uh, so much more of a subtle way to really return to be stewards of our land, stewards of our knowledge and education of how to live sustainably within our environments. I asked Sean to say a little bit about how folks such as myself who work in education can better contribute to decolonization. And he responded by telling me a little bit about the opportunities that are available to learn about indigenous peoples and the history of colonization. I mean, I think there's so much work to do out there on so many fronts, you know, and if you're in an educational uh, facility, you know, you have a lot of opportunity to utilize, utilize a lot of these resources and to showcase like how much work and effort has to be done over the next couple of decades, probably for you know, a true sense of reclamation and reformation around indigenous foods for, for indigenous communities mm-hmm. and how the next wave of students can come in and have gradually more and more access to not only um, to the food itself, but also the knowledge and the education around the food, around the history and around, you know, just indigenous uh, focused education in general. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just really important to start to take those steps, you know, so we're not just celebrating every single Uh, you know, Indigenous Peoples Day with fry bread or something like that, you know, that we're pushing ourselves harder to do something that's more relevant and being more inclusive with the different uh, groups coming in from different regions um, and celebrating that diversity and, you know, giving especially the youth the the opportunity to um, really kind of formulate their own thoughts around it and uh, ways that they can participate in ways that they can also be a part of it because, you know, just like our own ancestors, like everybody had to play a role in it, you know, whether you're hunting or fishing or farming and gardening or harvesting foods or processing foods or building tools and crafting and all the tradition and knowledge that goes into like everybody was playing a role into supporting this knowledge and this educational base. So uh, we uh, like in, you know, like I, I don't know everything by far. Like I've started something, I'll never see the end of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's fine because I'll have a lifetime worth of education and uh, to look forward to, right. to learn about, you know? And it's exciting that we can see that it'll go way past my own lifetime. And there's so much more that we can be learning, but it's just, you know, partnering with like-minded people of understanding the value of these things and the value of um, starting these systems and, and whatever capacity that we have to really, you know, push to decolonize and to push to showcase the value of indigenous knowledge um, pretty much mm-hmm. everywhere. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. Thinking about those opportunities, what would be some suggestions that you would have for someone that's like taking first steps, thinking about some of these things? Um, a part of it for me was just realizing the absence of it and real and kind of seeing clearly a picture of like understanding like how much education and knowledge there was in the yeah. past and you know, again, starting to piece together um, what was what was lost during, you know, especially the the 1900s um, as we got pushed onto reservations. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, I was you know reading a lot of archaeological, a lot of historical, a lot of uh, ethnobotanical uh, and botanical texts, and you know, talking to different elders, and just it was kind of like taking a broken, shattered pot and trying to find pieces, and then slowly forming it back together to start to see a larger picture. Yeah. you know, of what it looks like. But, you know, for, for, since we've gotten through a lot of that work, um, we're hoping to 
put all that together into a center point so people won't have to search so, so far and wide and that we can just have it in one nice spot for people to access, you know? So we're going to be doing a lot of work and effort in trying to do that, um, you know, putting a lot of online resources together. So universities and school systems and individuals will be able to just, you know, re uh, tap into us and, start to find paths to what they're looking for. And hopefully, you know, that volume of knowledge will just continue to grow and grow and grow, um, you know, far into the future, because that's, you know, that's something that's just not out there. There's just not a lot of center points for indigenous education um, that, you know, that we have access to. So this work is, you know, trying to create that, that system, because we see that as one of the biggest needs. Like it's one thing to, you know, have a catering company and serve some indigenous foods or create a restaurant. But it's another thing to, again, like teach people about this so they can, you know, take parts of it and even further the education past what our capacity will be. Following up on his previous answer, I asked Sean about more concrete ways that folks could get involved. He answered that question by providing a terrific list of organizations that one could directly become involved with or to support. Here are those organizations. Well, I mean, we're a nonprofit, but there's a lot of other nonprofits out there and, you know, like people can always support us directly. Yeah. So we have a lot of information and, and we're slowly developing, like our nonprofit's still very young, you know, our yeah. 501c3 that was formed just a couple of years ago. But, you know, people can always just go directly to our website at natives.org, um, which is that acronym, North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. Um, or they can find us at Sushi. But there's a whole bunch of players out there. You know, there's a whole slew of really amazing people doing really cool work. There's, you know, seed savers and farmers and ranchers and um, uh, academics and, uh, you know, authors and all sorts of other chefs and, you know, people who are really uh, focused on traditional crafting methods and history. And there's just so many cool people out there. So really it's just kind of plugging into this movement you know, and finding which part, you know, is, is really speaks to you and, you know, and trying to help or support or, you know, even even learn from some of those areas. But just being a part of this movement, I think, is the biggest thing because it's just growing and growing. And, you know, all of us in it can really feel it. Um, and it's going to be a matter of time before it's going to be normal to find, you know, indigenous focused restaurants mm -hmm. in cities all over the nation. What are some good entry points, though, for people who might not know much, right, not have not been tapped in yet but want to um well i mean obviously we're super connected with social media so it's easy yeah. to start following people and uh, their efforts and their adventures on places like instagram and facebook yeah um, there's a lot of great books out there um, and there's a lot of good writers and there's a lot of groups out there so it really depends on which part of the country you're in yeah. um, and what your interests are whether you're into farming and agriculture and seeds or whether you're into wild plants and you know, conservation and ecosystems, or maybe you're into history, or maybe you're just into culinary, you know, there's so many pieces to tap into. And a lot of it's just, you know, start following people and you're starting to see more and more and more. And like, we always do our best to try and share news articles from other people and organizations doing amazing things and really just trying to create, bring, uh, use our stage to share the awareness of all, all this work that's being done out there. Yeah. So do you think uh, the the sous chef sort of website would be a good place for some folks to start and to see yep. some things that are LinkedIn? 
Absolutely. You know, the sous chef website and even the cookbook, you know, when we put out the cookbook, I made sure to um, try to include um, a a nice handful of other indigenous chefs to showcase a lot of the diversity that sits out there. There's a lot of great conferences that happen this uh, here and there around the country of different kind of food summits um, and gatherings. Um, And there's just, there's a lot of stuff out there. So it's just a matter of people just doing a little bit of research and plugging in. Um, But as we grow, you know, we're going to, especially with indigenous food lab, you know, as we grow, we're going to, you know, try and really be that center point so people can, you know, look us up and hopefully tap into uh, their own regions with the efforts going on there or even come and visit us and be a part of what we're trying to accomplish. This brought Sean and I to the end of our conversation. I asked him if there's anything else that he wanted to talk about that we hadn't had a chance to discuss yet. And here's what he said. And let me note that what he said was a doozy. So I want to ask to see what, what do you want to talk about? What do you like people never ask you about that you'd like to talk about? <laughs> it's a tough one. Cause I get a lot of uh, media. So we talk a lot. I feel like I talk a lot, but um, you know, we're mostly just excited to see this all, all this work come into fruition. You know, we've been working so hard. Um, we set up a really strong capital campaign last year, um, which was really successful. And we're really excited to make the, uh, the indigenous food lab a reality. We're really excited to grow our team so we have um, uh, more and more bandwidth to do more and more work. I'm excited to bring in more people in the culinary scene uh, so we can grow and have fun and experiment and just really you know, showcase uh, um, you know, what we can do with indigenous foods um, in the future. Yeah. Um, and there's just, you know, we're just really excited. So we're just uh, hoping people will come and visit us, try the restaurant when it's open. Um, and just, you know, support us as we take this kind of daunting mission to um, really help uh, hopefully try and spread Indigenous food access all over the place. Uh, are there other projects you're working on right now that people should keep their eye out if they're interested in this kind of thing? Um, well, we're going to continue to work on a, a new book projects for the future. So we're hoping to continue the work around, um, you know, that that part of it. Um, my partner, Dana Thompson, her work is really on focusing on uh, kind of historic and uh, ancestral trauma mm-hmm. and ways that we can start to really focus and tackle that and really, you know, be aware of that piece, too, as we move into the future. Um, and there's, you know, there's just uh, it seems like we're always juggling a lot and we're, you know, traveling a lot to different communities and being able to do different dinners um, with different entities. and. We're just really excited to um, share what we can, um, but we knew that wasn't going to be sustainable to travel everywhere all the time that we have mm-hmm. a great system where, you know, people can come to us and eventually we can grow that system out so it can be in regions everywhere. We have to look at the amount of trauma that indigenous peoples um, across the U.S. and Canada have suffered in Mexico and then around the world, you know, it doesn't stop here, but, you know, the effects of colonialism and especially with, you know, here in the U.S., and the really harsh treatment of indigenous peoples where there was active genocide happening, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, as indigenous peoples, we survived through a lot of these atrocities. You know, I grew up right next to um, Wounded Knee, which is just, you know, not too far from the house I grew up in on Pine Ridge. Um, and seeing that, you know, on a, on a daily, if not weekly basis, right? And, you know, so understanding a lot of this trauma, but also understanding like the boarding school systems and how traumatic that was for an entire generation of children um, that continued deep into the 1900s um, and how much um, abuse was uh, and death, you know, was seen at those at those uh, systems 
and how much trauma that brought back brought uh, brought back directly into our tribal communities you know oh. so because of learning things like uh, you know corporal punishment of being uh, punished harshly um, which was something that wasn't uh, part of our our ways as indigenous peoples you know we as indigenous peoples, we didn't raise our hands against children or elderly or anybody like that. But after the, um, the people who survived these traumatic boarding school systems, you know, we've seen huge rises of domestic violence, sexual violence and abuse and all sorts of issues. That's all trauma related. Um, and just trying to survive in an extremely racist society um, is another piece to it. You know, so there's all sorts of trauma around us that a lot of us are born and don't even realize that we carry with us. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that we address a lot of these issues that are that are not only are we went through in our own lifetime, but what our parents and our grandparents went through and how that trickled down um, to who we are today and and what we can do and what steps we can do to make changes to that. Before I sign off, I want to take a moment to review some of the things that Sean talked about that stood out to me. One thing that particularly caught my attention was what Sean said about examining how colonization alienated indigenous folks from their cultures, relationships with the land, and foodways. I suspect that for many of us, any education that we've received about colonization has been rather thin and has never really explored how deeply settler colonialism affects indigenous peoples. Another thing that really stood out to me was how Sean spoke about his efforts to reclaim the culture and history that colonization has alienated from him. More specifically, how his work was both public, yet deeply personal, really resonated with me. I hope that you've found the conversation that I had with Sean as edifying as I do. In the next episode of Just Sustainability, I'll introduce you to Dr. Teresa Peterson, who is a former vice chairwoman of the Upper Sioux community and co-founder of Dakota Wichoha, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to revitalize the Minnesota Dakota language. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.